Let me ask you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 17. I hope you enjoyed the gift of some friends who spoke to us the last couple of Sundays, Jared Mellinger, Mark Prater. If you weren't here, I would encourage you to listen to those messages. Those are dear friends in our partner churches and men that I deeply respect, we deeply respect, grateful for their messages to us. But this morning we return to our series in Revelation. I, I want to warn you also as we read that this is one of a number of passages in Revelation where uh, the language is intentionally provocative. It's designed to wake people up to spiritual realities, and uh, that is the goal of this language. I just want to warn you for that as we anticipate this, and let's remember this is God's Word. So this is God being uh, intentionally provocative because this Word is meant to provoke us towards the following and the fear of Him. So let's begin reading Revelation chapter 17 and verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction." And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings that have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. They are of one mind and hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast 
will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. Perhaps you'll remember uh, this story. There's actually a number of different versions of it, I think, in, in literature and so forth. But you'll remember perhaps a popular version. I'm not recommending the movie. But perhaps you'll remember the story of pirate gold that had a curse on it. The pirates, of course, desired the gold. They grasped the gold, assuming that it will make them rich. It will give them pleasures for their life. But instead, the gold brings death. It brings devastation and hopelessness and destruction. The gold that promises pleasure produces death. So it is with the tempting culture of pleasure and luxuries in this age. They call out, like the sirens to Odysseus, they call out offering pleasure, but there is evil lurking behind their offer, an evil that will finally result in death and judgment. And that is the point of this passage. Actually, this passage and the next passage all speak to this idea that there, there is a, a city, an entity in the symbolism of Revelation, a, a thing, a force, a power in this age. It is supported and enthroned by the very emissaries of Satan himself, and its, its goal is to entice people towards immoral, adulterous, ungodly lives through the offering, the bait of luxuries and pleasures. We might summarize these next two chapters this way. Beware the judgment coming on the immoralities of this age. Beware the judgment coming on the tempting immoralities of this age. Beware their tempting calls and remember their end. That's what Revelation 17 and 18 are intending to do. Remember, beware. The judgment coming on the tempting immoralities of this age. Remember their end. This passage basically breaks down into a a vision that John receives. And then, because he is perplexed and God is kind to him and to us, an explanation of that vision. Let's walk through the passage and I'm going to try to save a good amount of time at the end for application. John is told by one of the seven angels who hold those seven bowls of judgment that we just read about that he will show him the judgment of a great prostitute seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth, in verse 2, have committed immorality and with whose wine of sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. So he gives this preview before he sees the vision. And this preview is, is, is meant to alert John. You're, you're about to see something that speaks to the immoralities of the age, the intoxications of the age, the impurities of the age. And there's going to be a link between what you're about to see, these immoralities, these intoxications, and the kings, the powers of the earth. 
because they, along with their people, have been drunk on this person's immorality, their enticing seductions. Now, I I think highly likely the immorality referenced here, it certainly includes physical immorality. I think that's certainly in view. That is obviously part of it. But it's highly likely that the language means more than just that one type of ungodliness. Even it's consistent in the Old Testament that immorality physically is also used as a metaphor for abandoning purity towards God and living instead towards any other idol. So very likely that this passage is not just about that one type of sin certainly includes that, but is meant to metaphorically speak to all those ways in which the peoples and the powers of the age seek to adulterate their souls away from God. That's the idea here. And this woman is going to be a a symbolic representation of that call throughout the age linked to the powers of the age ultimately supported by Satan himself. Certainly in this time, Rome would come to mind. There's many images in the passage that seem to speak to Rome, the, the great and powerful city of Rome that ruled in John's day. That's, that's what Ian Paul, the commentator, says when he says this. The, the seductive power of what Rome has to offer in prosperity, wealth, military power, and glory by association distorts the judgment of both rulers and people just as surely as if they were drunk. That's the introduction. And then the angel brings John into the wilderness in verse 3 to see in the Spirit a vision. A vision. This is not meant to be a an actual sight with an actual woman and an actual beast in the desert. No, this is symbolism that communicates spiritual reality. He sees a vision, and this vision is exactly what the angel said it would be. He sees this woman. She's seated on a scarlet beast, and apparently it's the same beast that we already read about in a previous chapter, the same certain of Satan that emerges from the sea. He is full of blasphemous, God-defying names, He has seven heads showing a perfection of cunning and ten horns showing a fullness of power. And then in verse 4, if you keep your eyes on your Bible, the woman is arrayed splendidly with great wealth. She would be the picture in this day of ultimate luxury. And, And that picture is likely part of the point. The overwhelming luxury and adornment of this woman is part of her allure that She represents all of the pleasures and luxuries and powers of this age. Even her cup that she holds is gold. And yet beyond the surface, there are atrocities and abominations. Inside this golden cup, what she actually offers to those kings is abominations, a word used even in the Old Testament to describe atrocious sins against God and the impurities of immorality. Her real character is seen by the name on her forehead in verse 5. She is the mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations. Again, the commentaries will point out that just as God's people were pictured as a mother in the wilderness bearing offspring for God, so this woman is represented bearing offspring for evil. So two women are being set up in Revelation. 
both of which who call out for allegiance and loyalty. One who is faithful and pure in following God despite persecutions, and one who calls for compromise and sin. In the same way, this woman is also depicted as a city. So in the same way, there is a great and glorious city to come, and there is a city of this age, both of which call out for allegiance and loyalty. Dennis Johnson says this about this woman and the lamb's woman who are the opposites. He says, the beast woman and the lamb's woman are opposites, each with her own sort of splendor, gold, precious stones, pearls, and fine linen. But the attractiveness of the harlot is both hollow and short-lived, to be turned to ashes in one hour, whereas the beauty of the bride is genuine and eternal. As for those who reject her wiles, we see in verse 6, for those who refuse her call, the beast on which she sits will do violence upon them, and she is drunk with the blood of the saints. So we see a, a picture here. Symbolically, there is an entity that calls out for compromise, for indulgence in the pleasures and luxuries, coupled with sinful ways of rejecting God and living for other things besides God. And for those who refuse to engage in that offer, there is persecution even to death. That's the picture. That's the, the shocking sight. There's this woman. She's arrayed in splendor and even a kind of earthly glory, but she is grotesquely drunk on the blood of violence. She sits on a beast of overpowering and ferocious and terrifying appearance with overwhelming power. And John, when he sees this vision, understandably marvels greatly, the passage says. Verse 6, I saw the woman, and when I saw her, I marveled greatly. He, he's shocked, he's dismayed. The combination of luxury and extravagance with grotesque, cannibalistic delight in the death of God's people, supported by this overwhelmingly powerful evil beast. John, not surprisingly, marvels greatly. Perhaps... He is concerned for the well-being, the endurance of his dear friends in the church. Perhaps he would remember even that one of those churches was called out for supporting Jezebel, a false teacher, so that even the church is vulnerable to this kind of seduction by the enemy. The angel perhaps even gently rebukes John and says, why do you marvel? As if to say, do you really not know that this evil power and enticement is present in the world? Are you really so shocked that it is precisely this grotesque? But he has kindness on John and on us, and he says, I will tell you the mystery of the woman and the beast. I will tell you this mystery in verse 7. And then he begins to explain, and his, his emphasis actually in the explanation focuses on the beast because the beast, this servant of Satan that we've already read about, is this representative of Satan on earth. And it apparently is the power behind this woman or that supports this woman. And he begins to explain what this beast represents. This beast, you notice in verse 8, 
was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit, but its end ultimately is destruction. This calls to mind what John talked about earlier, that one of its heads had the appearance of a mortal wound, but apparently it was not dead yet and it had revived. There is a sense in which this beast's apparent revival will astonish those who are not Christians. They will be impressed by his longevity, his endurance, his return, we could even say. We don't know exactly what this mortal wound was. Some commentators speculate perhaps that's a reference to the victory of Christ and resurrection, the apparent defeat of Satan in that resurrection, but, but that defeat was not such that evil was eradicated from this age yet. But whatever it was, there is this sense, more importantly, that this beast apes or mimics, in a grotesque way, Jesus himself. As we said before in that previous chapter, there, there is a dragon that seeks to represent the authority of the Father, and there is this beast that represents the resurrection of the Son, and then there is this false prophet that represents the efforts of the Holy Spirit. So, Satan, attempting to replace God, seeks to imitate God in an evil way, and here is this beast that seeks to ape or imitate in some way the resurrection of Christ, and his apparent power entices people to follow him, even all of those, as the text said, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. Now that phrase is meant to comfort God's people that even as they walk through this grotesque history, God has known their names from the beginning. God has called them from the beginning and has chosen them to endure. Their names are in the book of life, unlike those who will marvel and be enticed by the beast because of his apparent power. The explanation continues in verse 9. John is told this calls for a mind with wisdom. And, and again, I don't think the wisdom here is mathematical wisdom or historical wisdom or some kind of modern ability to interpret modern applications here. No, I, I think this is the wisdom to see the true nature of this evil. And then he provides explanation. The seven heads are seven mountains. They are also seven kings. So apparently this seven-headed beast can be represented both by a, a kind of location and a kind of dominance. Now, as you, I'm sure, can imagine, much has been written attempting to identify precisely who these kings are that are represented by these heads the seven hills are an easier reference because highly likely, maybe the most clear geographic reference is that Rome was built on seven hills. So in John's mind, and anybody reading this would think immediately, well, well Rome, this beast at some level is connected to Rome. In their day, Rome would have been the epitome of this combination of illicit enticements and political power. Rome would have been the perfect example of this kind of combination. And this beast being or representing a city set on seven hills would certainly call Rome to mind. But it's also seven kings. And a lot's been written to try to figure out who these kings are exactly. And as usual, such attempts are very difficult because Rome had more than seven emperors 
And it's also hard to know whether you start with Julius Caesar, who wasn't really technically an emperor, or you start with Caesar Augustus, who was technically an emperor, but then do you count the three emperors who came quickly in the middle after a lot of turmoil, or do you not count those three guys, and then where is it exactly supposed to end? It's very difficult. It's very difficult to determine precisely if these are Roman kings. So at some point, somebody decided that isn't the reference, it's empires, they're not kings exactly, they're empires. But that's very difficult. Where do you start exactly with that empire? Do you start with Assyria and then do you move? What about modern empires? Very challenging. And I think in that challenge there is a caution. Because if we actually believe that God knows everything down to the location by town and name of the birth of his son, then we certainly know God knows precisely the names of every king in history. So when God says, I'm providing an explanation, but he doesn't provide more than he provides, we should be content with that. What is clear to me, and I think would be clear to our friend, that Mediterranean fisherman that I keep referencing, what's the clearest thing about this is, there is a kind of kingship power that this beast represents. It precedes John's time. It exists during John's time, and it will extend after John's time. Now, I think anybody could get that. I think anybody. If you read this, you notice, well, five of these kings have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only for a little while. And also, by the way, there's ten more kings that are going to come briefly at a later time. What's the clearest thing to get from that? The power of this beast expressed in powerful cities and rulers in this age. They preceded John. They exist during John's time, they will exist after John's time, they are supported by the beast, they look to represent the beast, they support this woman in her enticement, so be prepared for evil powers during this age that are supported by Satan and will come against you during your time and after your time and all the way until the end, but know this, they go finally to destruction. Now I think even a Mediterranean fisherman reading this letter from John could get that. I don't think he had to know, if we don't know exactly who this king is, I, I, no, I, I don't think so. I think this is meant to communicate, and even the fact that there's seven gives us a hint because seven is a symbolic number. There, there is a certain number of kings that are supported by and represent this beast they, they certainly would have been represented in this time by Rome. I think that's why all the geographic references call Rome to mind. But, but they seem to go beyond Rome. Because it's not called Rome, it's called Babylon. And everybody reading this would know that Babylon is not literally a city that has power, but it's symbolically a city that all the way back to the Tower of Babel and through the Empire of Babylon represented that city that hates God, hates his people, and entices people to sin. The church exists, the angel says, in the midst of a string of earthly powers that are expressions of the power of the beast who is allied with tempting seductions of this age. I think that's the point of this strange phrase. You'll notice there that the beast is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. Now, if you try to figure that out mathematically, it's an eighth, but it belongs to the seven. Well, I, I think the point is there probably will be a final culminating expression of this beast 
but it will be of the same character of all those kings that it supported previously. One greater and beyond them, perhaps, at the end of the age, but of the same character since they all derived their power from him. Now, the angel keeps going, speaking of the future. John hears that ten horns, you notice that in verse 12, also represent kings, in this case those that are to come at the time of the writing, yet he says their, their power will only be for one hour, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. Now, perhaps these ten kings are concentrated at the end. We don't know. What we do know is their, their time is going to be very brief. One hour is, is usually the, the, the shortest, one of the shortest references in Revelation of time. You have days, you have years, you have months, and you have an hour. The point is, in the scope of history, very brief. They'll rise and they'll fall. They'll rise, hand over their power to the beast, and then they'll fall. That's to be expected. As the age progresses, powers will rise, powers will fall. And frankly, I think that's precisely what we see in history. Powers rise, and then powers fall. They seem intimidating, inexorable. They claim to be permanent, and then they fall. And their end is made plain, if you notice there, in verse 14. These kings, whether they come concentrated at the end or expressions of them them, uh, throughout history, they will make war on the Lamb. There will be powers of this age by the, supported by the servants of Satan, and they will make war on the Lamb. They will hate Jesus. They will do whatever they can to destroy him and his followers. They will blaspheme him in keeping with the blasphemous names of this beast. There will be powers of this age that will hate Jesus Christ and will seek to destroy him, but the Lamb will conquer them. This is part of the essence of what it means to be a Christian. To expect powers of this age, allied with seductions of this age, to hate Jesus and all that he stands for, to seek to destroy him from the earth. So, brothers and sisters, since this has been explained to us, we ought not to be surprised when it happens. How easy, even in our current day, with the moralities of our culture and our country changing and things that we wouldn't have imagined 20 years ago now being assumed, things that we would have applauded 20 years ago now being mocked, how easy to be surprised, dismayed, marvel. And we need to hear the voice of this angel. Why do you marvel? The Scriptures have declared the kings of this age in various ways. They didn't tell us exactly why, and I think that's on purpose because whatever king of your age doesn't find his name here, but he certainly is represented here if he is making war on the Lamb. And to any modern rulers who are defying the morality of God's rulership over this world, it is worth saying oh, outrightly, the Lamb, if you do not repent, will conquer you. That goes for every president, every ruler, every king, every congressman, every senator, every governor, every DA in this land, including all the lands of the nations, if they will not submit to the authority of God's holy rulership of this world, and if they in any way resist 
resist the lamb and his people, the lamb will conquer them. For Christians, why, the angel says, do you marvel? Even as Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Now, we find something surprising at the end of this passage. The angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages, highly likely again, a contemporary reference to Rome with her seat of power on the Mediterranean, perhaps also a reference to Babylon seated on the Euphrates, certainly a reference to this enticing city of seduction and pleasures, rules over many, according to the angel. But in verse 16, these coming kings will hate this woman. Now here's a surprise. Weren't they in alliance with her before. Now these future kings destroy her. What, what's happening here? And they will hate her to the point of utter humiliation and devastation. They will desolate her. They will devour her. They will burn her up. Her glamorous coverings and adornments will be removed from her. She will be exposed. And verse 17, God has put it into their hearts to carry out this purpose by giving their authority to the beast. So the beast who supported her at one time, who was allied with her, who helped her to be all that she was called to be, will in some other moment destroy and decimate her. Well, what's the point here? Satan is divided against himself. And don't we see this literally happening in history? At one moment, Rome, for one example, in all of its glory, both of evil idolatries, is the power of the age. But then the new power of the age comes and rips it to pieces, shreds it, annihilates it. And don't we see that in power after power after power throughout the age? They rise in military might combined with some kind of evil idolatry. But then ultimately another power comes and destroys that thing that seemed so unstoppable. So it will be until the end. The very power that causes those adulteries to be prominent, that earthly power and might will, will then turn against it and destroy it. It's a devastating picture of the hopelessness of following the beast. Because not only will you face God's judgment in the end, the very person you are following will betray you, devour you, and destroy you. This devastating point about the hopeless destruction wreaked by the beast and his servants on this woman with her allurements as she represents the seductive pleasures of this age. It's described very well by Dennis Johnson when he says, What will become of the harlot Babylon, whose judgment John was to see? Now she sits enthroned over the world's people, multitudes, nations, and tongues. She controls them in her arrogant confidence. 
through the heart-stealing seduction of her promise of prosperity and through the brute force of the beast's military might. But when the dragon's worldwide web of wickedness starts to unravel, the harlot will be the first casualty. The beast in its military alleys will hate the harlot and make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. Satan's kingdom will be divided against itself and will not stand. The irony of Babylon's fall magnifies the incomparable power and wisdom of God. The beast and its allies, raging in hostility toward the lamb and his bride, will be the weapons that God uses to bring down the harlot who was once the beast's royal consort. If there is one thing in all the world the rebels do not want to do, it is the purpose of God. But they are helpless to keep that sovereign purpose out of their hearts. In doing what they want to do, hating the harlot and ripping her to pieces, they are doing precisely what God wants. And in gathering to wage their war against the Messiah, they are merely assembling for their own execution. Her money will decay with her. Her lavish confidence will lead to corruption and mockery. The very king she sought to claim as her friends will turn against her in betrayal, and she will be cast down in utter humiliation. What's the point? Beware the judgment of the immoralities of this age. Beware any fear or enticement toward them. They seem luxurious and delectable, but their luxuries and calls come with a curse. A destined curse that cannot be thwarted. As much as they glitter, as much as they call, they will end in devastation and judgment. A judgment that will even begin in this age and will lead finally to the devastation at the hand of the Lamb. And as for those that seek to exercise power in this age, if they defy the Lamb, they will be defeated by the Lamb, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. And all those who blaspheme the Lamb will be crushed by the Lamb. All those who adulterate themselves to this age and are drunk on its pleasures will drink the cup of wrath. That's the point of Revelation 17. Now let's apply it to our everyday lives this week. Three points of application before we close. How do you beware? How do you beware? How do you respond? First, identify the bait of pleasures and luxuries that lead you to sin. Identify the bait of pleasures and luxuries that lead you to sin. This woman, if I can call her that symbolically, she's very good at picking the right bait. We might look at another person's bait and scoff, saying, I can see the hook from here. How can you fall for that? And be unaware of the bait that is enticing to us. What is it for you? The, the passage seems to emphasize pleasure, pleasures of 
immorality, pleasures of luxury, but, but they're never presented on the surface as immoralities, are they? They're never presented on the surface as greed. They're presented on the surface as enjoyable. Their status and riches and security and pleasures on the surface of which at some level are even good things. But behind them is the hook of sinful compromise. It's loving them more than God. It's sinning in order to get them. It's loving what perhaps is good in one context but is sinful in another. It's the pleasures and luxuries of this age. That's why she's adorned with pearls and gold and jewels and arrayed in scarlet. Why? Because it looks good. What is your bait? What glitters for you right now? Think in the categories of pleasure, luxury. Pleasures and luxuries. What what glitters for you? Something on a screen? Something nice to drive? Something nice to live in? Some place nice to go? Something nice to wear? Somebody's approval or applause of you? What glitters for you? What glitters for you? Be honest with yourself. What glitters for you? What will glitter for you this week? Maybe not bad at some level, but a hook that could draw you into idolatry and, and loving it more and more. The woman doesn't come offering defiance of God. She comes offering luxury and pleasure. She doesn't come saying, hate God and betray Jesus. She comes saying, doesn't this look nice? Haven't you worked hard enough to deserve this? Shouldn't you be enjoying the good things of life? This won't hurt anybody who doesn't know. Wouldn't you enjoy a break from all you've had to bear? She's very good. Something glitters for me and for you. What is it? Identify the bait. And then... Since the worst thing in the world is biting that hook, do whatever you have to do to flee that bait. Now, bait is different. You can't hold that standard on everybody else because they might not be tempted. They might be able to enjoy a little bit in a godly way of something that you cannot. But what is the bait for you? This is one of the positive benefits, for example, of things like accountability for what you watch, things like, for example, the command to give. That, that's not just a duty. That's a protection from God. Giving sacrificially is one way God protects us from the idolatry of luxury that this woman offers. If you don't give... You are in danger of this bait. It's one of the gifts of things like fasting. If you've never fasted, 
or you've never restrained your appetite in various ways, alcohol or drugs or food or whatever, you never had that difficult moment of saying no when you want to say yes, that's glittering for you. If, if your thought is, you know what, what I want to do is enjoy the good luxuries of life. I'm going to get to a point where I can enjoy the luxuries that I've worked hard for. Be careful. Scripture is filled with warnings to the rich not to love the temporariness of riches. Be careful. Not all physical things are bad, you know that, but, but there is a bait there, and she is very, very good. Identify the bait of pleasures and luxuries that most often lead you to sin. Maybe not explicit sin, maybe not overt sin, just a diminishing of your love for God, your looking to eternity, and your desire to serve his people. Again, it won't start with, Come defy God. It will start with, wouldn't it be nice to enjoy that rather than serve here? Wouldn't it be nice, nice to spend that on yourself rather than give faithfully? Wouldn't it be nice to have more rather than care for someone else? Actually, it would. And little by little by little, the hook is drawn in. Identify the bait. G.K. Beale says, how easily is it possible for God's people to be seduced by her attractive appearance and the economic and social advantages she offers to those who cooperate with her? If this is, and it is, the most materialistic and wealthy society in human history, are these temptations even greater for us today? What would it involve for us to compromise our faith in order to gain material or social advantage from our own Babylon. Would you rather be poor and godly or rich and compromised? Would you rather be outcast and godly or statist and compromised? She's very good. Identify the bait and reject it. Second application. Review regularly the judgment on idolatry and compromise. Review it regularly. It's one of the reasons these chapters are built into the Bible. They, they shouldn't be chapters where oh, shudder and move past quickly. We should review them regularly because they help inform our minds. Because in this world, she doesn't appear grotesque and the beast only appears impressive. These are spiritual realities. In the physical world, it's the wow, impressive, amazing, look at that invention, look at that accomplishment, look at that beauty, look at that glory. It's impressive, inexorable, amazing. That's why we have to keep reading about their end. Is it really so bad to compromise in this way or that way? Is it really so bad to indulge or appease or live for the approval and applause of this age? Is it really so bad? They're not hurting anyone else. Review the end. Review the end. It's found here. It's found many places in the book of Isaiah, many of the prophets. 
Jesus speaks of it regularly throughout his ministry. When you get there, don't move on quickly. Oh, I, this isn't grace. I'd like to move. No, no. No, no, linger there and let it reshape your view of what will last and what will not. Review the judgment on idolatry and compromise. Fathers, don't skip over the hard passages in your devotional reading with your children. They need the reshaping of how the world will actually end because they live bombarded with cultural definitions of permanence and glory and attractiveness that are outright lies and hoping, hoping to send them to hell. Final application. Tell Jesus every day that your life belongs to him. This passage as Revelation is, is just sprinkled. It's a passage about judgment, but it's sprinkled with comfort. Your life has been written before the foundation of the earth in the book of the Lamb. The Lamb will conquer them. The enemy who drinks the blood of the saints will herself be destroyed. Those who are with the Lamb are called and chosen and faithful. The purposes of God, his words, will be fulfilled. So, tell Jesus every day that your life belongs to him. Every day, you'll have opportunity to see where you want your life to belong to something else. I do. (laughs) I see cravings for other masters all the time. And if I don't see them, somebody points them out to me. In my heart, I see them all the time. We need to tell the one person who is the payment for our sins and our refuge for the future and our Lord against all other lords. Our life belongs to you. It doesn't belong to my boss. It doesn't belong to this world. It does not belong to social media. It does not belong to enticing idols in my life. It does not belong to gluttony or lust or seductions or unfaithfulness or money or career or house or reputation. It belongs to you. You purchased it. It belongs to you. And I trust you for the future. Tell Jesus every day that your life belongs to him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our lives belong to you. Gratefully so. Lord, wherever we have been hooked and snared by the alluring calls of this age, rescue us again. Forgive us again. Cleanse and purify us. Keep our hearts pure towards you. Lord, wherever we've been afraid, intimidated by the powers and enticements of this age, Lord Jesus, give us peace to trust in you. Give us grace to see the end. We pray this in Jesus' name.